shattered into splinters, RV parks, housing developments, shopping malls, all destroyed at the flick of the twister's pitiless, mindless malevolence, blasted as completely and ruthlessly as if they had been struck by an enemy missile attack. The enemy is Mother Nature, Dan repeated silently, numbly, as he stared at the advancing tornadoes. There was nothing he could do about them, and he knew it. They couldn't be bought, bribed, flattered, seduced, or threatened into obedience. For the first time since he'd been a child, Daniel Hamilton Randolph felt totally powerless. As he locked the partition shut again and fumbled in his pockets for his antiseptic spray, the chopper swung away, heading back toward what was left of the International Airport. The Tennessee National Guard had thrown a cordon around the grounds, the airport was the Memphis region's last link with the rest of the country. The floods had knocked out electrical power, smashed bridges, covered roads with thick, muddy brown water. Most of the city had been submerged for days. Then came the earthquake, a solid nine on the Richter scale, so powerful that it flattened buildings from Nashville to Little Rock and as far north as St. Louis. New Orleans had already been underwater for years as the rising Gulf of Mexico inexorably reclaimed its shoreline from Florida to Texas. The Mississippi was in flood all the way up to Cairo and still rising. Now, with communications out, millions homeless in the never-ending rains, aftershocks strong enough to tumble skyscrapers, Dan Randolph searched for the one person who meant something to him, the only woman he had ever loved. He let the binoculars drop from his fingers and rested his head on the seat back. It was hopeless. Finding Jane out there among all those other people. The co-pilot had twisted around in his seat and was tapping on the clear plastic partition. What? Dan yelled. Instead of trying to out-shout the engine's roar through the partition, the co-pilot pointed to the earpiece of his helmet. Dan understood and picked up the headset they had given him from where he'd dumped it on the floor. He had sprayed it when they'd first handed it to him, but now he doused it again with the antiseptic. As he clamped it over his head, he heard the metallic, static-streaked voice of a news reporter saying, "'Definitely identified as Jane Scanwell. The former president was found, by a strange twist of fate, on President's Island, where she was apparently attempting to help a family of refugees escape the rising Mississippi waters. Their boat apparently capsized and was swept downstream, but snagged on treetops on the island. Jane Scanwell, the 52nd President of the United States, died trying to save others from the ravages of flood and earthquake here in what remains of Memphis, Tennessee. La Guaira It was raining in Venezuela, too, when Dan Randolph finally got back to his headquarters. Another hurricane was tearing through the Caribbean, lashing Barbados and the Windward Islands, dumping twenty-five centimeters of rain on the island of La Guaira and Caracas on the mainland, with more to come. Dan sat behind his big, bare desk, still wearing the rumpled slacks and pullover that he had traveled in from the States. His office smelled musty, 
mildewed from the incessant rain despite its laboring climate control system. It wasn't wearing the protective nose plugs. The air in his office was routinely filtered and run past intense ultraviolet lamps. Leaning back into the softly yielding caramel brown leather of his swivel chair, Dan gazed out at the wind-swept launch complex. The rockets had been towed back into the assembly buildings. In this storm, they could not dare to launch even the sturdy, reliable clipper ships. The launch towers were visibly shaking in the gale-force wind, lashed by horizontal sheets of rain. Roofs had already been peeled off some of the smaller buildings. Beyond the launch towers, the sea was a wild madhouse of frothing, white-capped waves. The wind howled like a beast of prey, rattling even the thick, double-paned windows of Randolph's office. Third storm to hit us, and it's not even the Fourth of July yet. Business isn't lousy enough. We've got these double-damned hurricanes to deal with. At this rate, I'll be broke by Labor Day. We're losing, Dan thought. We're in a war, and we're losing it. Hell, we've already lost it. What's the sense of pretending otherwise? The dampness made him ache deep in his bones, an arthritic-like reminder of his age and the dose of radiation sickness he'd contracted years earlier. I ought to go back to Selene, he told himself. A man with a broken-down immune system shouldn't stay on Earth if he doesn't have to. Yet, for hours, he simply sat there, staring out at the pounding storm, seeing only the face of Jane Scanwell remembering the sound of her voice, the touch of her fingers, the soft silkiness of her skin, the scent of her, the way she brightened a room, the way she had filled his life even though they were never really together, not more than a few quick hours now and then before they fell into bitter argument. There was so much separating them. After she had left the White House, they had managed to spend a couple of days together on a tropical atoll. Even that had ended in a quarrel. But for once, they had seen things the same way, had the same goal, fought the same fight on the same side. The greenhouse cliff meant war, a war pitting humankind's global civilization against the blind forces of nature. Jane understood that as well as Dan did. They were going to fight this war together. And it killed her. Should I go on? Dan asked himself. What's the use of it? What's the sense of it? He wanted to cry, but the tears would not come. Dan Randolph had always seemed larger than his actual physical size, he was a solidly built welterweight, still in trim physical shape, although now, in his sixties, it took grueling hours in the gym to maintain his condition. His once sandy hair was almost completely gray now. His staff people called him the silver fox behind his back. He had a fighter's face with strong, stubborn jaw and a nose that had been flattened years ago by a fist when he'd been a construction worker in space. Despite all the wealth he'd amassed since those early days, he'd never had his nose fixed. 
Some said it was a perverse sense of machismo. His light gray eyes, which had often glinted in amusement at the foolishness of men, were bleak and saddened now. A chime sounded, and the sleek display screen of his computer rose slowly, silently, out of the desktop surface. Dan swiveled his chair to see the screen. His administrative assistant's young, somber face looked out at him. Teresa was a native of Caracas, tall, leggy, cocoa-cream complexion, deep brown almond eyes, and thick, lustrous midnight dark hair. Years earlier, Dan would have tried to bed her and probably succeeded. Now he was simply annoyed at her intrusion into his memories. It's almost dinner time, she said. So what? Martin Humphreys has been waiting all day to see you. He's the man Zack Freiburg wants you to meet. Dan grimaced. Zack had been the first one to warn Dan of the impending greenhouse cliff. Not today, Teresa, he said. I don't want to see anybody today. The young woman hesitated a heartbeat, then asked hesitantly, almost timidly, Do you want me to bring you a dinner tray? Dan shook his head. I'm not hungry. You have to eat. He looked at her image on his screen, so intent, so young and concerned and worried that the boss was going off the deep end and he felt anger rising inside him, unreasoning, blind, blazing rage. No, God damn it to hell and back, he snapped. You have to eat. I can do any goddamn thing I want to, and if you want to keep drawing your paycheck, you'd better leave me the hell alone.